Hi, welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant. Together with Andrea, Bex and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series Ted Lasso. If you love Ted Lasso as much as Danny loves giving away joy for free, then join this group of four women, handpicked by Beard himself, and let's go! Welcome back, Greyhounds, to Coach Beard's Book Club. Uh, this time we've been reading Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake, and my favourite thing about it was that you can't use Neanderthal as an insult if the Neanderthals discovered penicillin 50,000 years before Alexander Fleming. Andrea, what was your favourite thing? My favourite thing was, you know, I'm a Star Trek nerd, and in Star Trek Discovery, they use the mycelial network to travel through space and time, and I always assumed that was a Star Trek, like, you know, fake thing. And then I'm reading the book, and they talk about the mycelial network, and my head just exploded. So it's not just Star Trek dumb things that they make up. It's real. I love that. I never even spotted that. Excellent. Bex, what was your favorite? I mean, so many things. And my favorite, favorite thing is the thing I'm going to talk about in my section. But beyond that, there was this one quote that stood out to me. And I forget to write down which chapter it was from. But it's it was one where he says, we've bred strains of wheat to grow fast when they're given lots of fertilizer and ended up with spoiled plants that have almost lost the ability to cooperate with fungi. I was like, hmm, season one, Jamie Tart, anyone? I like it. I like it. Nice. Marita, what was your um, takeaway? Um, well, like with so many other books, and uh, I, I love, well, I have a lot that I love about this book that I'll talk about shortly, but I, I love how much Oregon there is in it because it rains a lot here in Western Oregon and there is a whole lot of fungal life going on. So uh, I'm going to cheer for the home team. Go Oregon. <laughs> Go Including Oregon. like the biggest mushroom, the biggest fungus in the world or something? Was it? Uh, yeah, the that? humongous fungus. That's actually... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, that's hilarious. <laughs> it is what it's called. That's what they call it. Um, I love it. It's, uh, it. That's over east. And it's. I think it's in the Ochicos. It's not an area you associate, at least if you live within the state, with heavy rainfall. But that's that's where it is. I was just going to say humongous fungus sounds like one of those uh, places you would stop on Route 66. You know, like the giant rubber ball or the, that's what that sounds like. The world's largest ball of twine. Yeah. Yeah. And the humongous <laughs> fungus. I <laughs> love it. It's our punk band name. <laughs> such a good band name i i love that we all enjoyed this book it's been a minute since that happened indeed bex you have a summary for us and let us know where we have seen the book in ted lasso the show yes absolutely so i'm gonna just read what was in the book jacket cover from the hardcover edition that we have here in the u.s i don't know if it's a it, you we have a different cover than you do so i don't know if the jacket cover looks different so, from the book jacket, a mind-bending journey into a hidden world that will change your understanding of life on Earth. I mean, okay, that's the catchy bit, sure. Then it goes on to say, when we think of fungi, we, think, we likely think of mushrooms, but mushrooms are only fruiting bodies, analogous to apples on a tree. Most fungi live out of sight, yet make up a massively diverse kingdom of organisms that support and sustain nearly all living systems. Fungi provide a key to understanding the planet on which we live and the ways we think, feel, and behave. In Entangled Life, a brilliant young biologist, I hope he didn't write this himself, (laughs) (laughs) 
Merlin Sheldrake provides us with an exhilarating change of perspective by showing us the world from a fungal point of view. Sheldrake's vivid exploration takes us from yeast to psychedelics, from the fungi that range for miles underground and are the largest organisms on the planet, to those that link plants together in complex networks known as the wood wide web, to those that infiltrate and manipulate insect bodies with devastating precision. Fungi throw into question our concepts of individuality and even intelligence. They are metabolic masters, earth makers, and key players of most of life's processes. They can alter our minds, heal our bodies, and even help us remediate environmental disaster. By examining fungi in their own terms, Sheldrake reveals how these extraordinary organisms, and our relationships with them, are transforming our understanding of how life works. Well done for not accidentally seeing orgasm. (laughs) I did that in like the fifth grade when I was learning about that. My mother came (laughs) in and was like, what did you say? And I was like, I said it again and she's like, no, it's this. And I'm like, I didn't even know what the other word was at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and for those who aren't sure... Where did Entangled Life show up in Ted Lasso? Season 2, Episode 11, Midnight Train to Royston. This is a scene, Beard is sitting at his desk reading the book when, this is when like Nate snaps at Will about the suit. He's like, oh, I brought you like Ted's suit. And he's like, it's my suit. Whatever. Then Roy comes in to ask if his brows are crazy. They're not. They're dreamy. Uh, (laughs) That's not what Beard says, but that's what I say. I was about to say. (laughs) Beard calls them psychotic, but it's all right. Then Nate presents the false nine play to Ted and complains to Beard and Roy that Ted will take all the credit and asks them, do you guys ever want to be in charge, be the boss, get the credit? And Beard replies with, you know, we used to believe that trees competed with each other for life. Suzanne Samard's fieldwork challenged that perception, and now we realize that the forest is a socialist community. Trees work in harmony to share the sunlight. Nate does not understand this and thinks that he can't get a straight answer from Beard. Excellent. Thanks for that, Bex. You're welcome. I feel like it was longer than usual, but bear with me. I enjoyed every <laughs> minute of it. It's a yeah. more complex book than what we usually read, I think. As, as I'm talking about being a more complex book, we're actually going to start with the scientists of the group, Marita, aren't we? All right. So as the, the resident book club science nerd, um, I'm going to start off with some broad impressions of this book. Uh, and I'm psyched because I think this is the first book. Uh, we've we've done some movies recently that we all liked, but this is the first book in a while that I think we all... In, in fact, it might be the first book since Wrinkle in Time that we all liked. Although Miss Peregrine's, we I think also enjoyed. But well, no, I think we all liked uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo. I think we all agreed One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was better than. Yeah. I mean, but liking it is different. Like this one, I actively <laughs> liked. Good point. Yeah, like we all like people. We want to buy it. Some of us, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and to be honest with you, I really like that there's no slurs and uh, they didn't even slut shame the trees. Yes. <laughs> well, no. almost. <laughs> no, those are the fun guy. <laughs> Sheldrake does seem like he's sort of okay with whatever they want to do, and I appreciate that about him. But one thing, I, I, I have several things I like about this book. Uh, but one thing I like is just the way he writes. You know, there is a fine line between whimsy and and bullshit. <laughs> um, and a lot of people cross it when they're writing popular science. He has a really good sense of where that line is. And I really appreciate 
that when reading because uh, so often I'm reading popular science and and will think like you can't say that based on the evidence or you know people will overstate claims or they'll make claims that are there's a few people who write who are very guilty of this they'll they'll make really broad claims based more on anecdote than evidence and uh, just basically cast misconceptions out into the world and so I love that Sheldrake really knows how to qualify what he's saying to not do that but still manage to express his sort of wonder and curiosity and just like his enthusiasm is so pervasive through the book I, I, it just you can tell how giddy he is thinking about all this stuff and it just makes you care about it too and he even indulges in some kind of out there what ifs but he doesn't present anything as settled fact he's like well there's no evidence for this but what about this or you know this isn't strongly supported we don't know I think it's really important for people writing about science to say, hey, we don't fully understand this. We don't know this. It's good to have people who maybe aren't as engaged in scientific research to have that. Oh, yeah, there's a lot we don't know, and that's okay. Uh, we can still go out there and be interested and look. There was one thing that I really, really liked that he mentioned was, you know, as humans, we have a tendency to anal anal anthropomorphize. Yeah, to answer. That's better. I was like, to, to, I wanted to be like, to make analogies but oh, yeah, yeah. To, but to anthropomorphize like plants and fungi and like uh, things that are not humans and and he calls attention to that but still like there are still moments where you're like yeah we do this but right. we have to be careful of doing it and then i think that's what you're talking yeah. about yeah among other things, yeah. And then he goes and, and vegetalizes humans, too. And I love that, too. He's like, let's turn this around. I think that's just great. Yeah, so I, I love that he's careful to note where things are disputed, what limitations are. I also appreciate from someone who's done experiment, experiments, right, how well he describes and appreciates how elegant some of these experiments are. Because looking at them, I'm like, oh, that is a gorgeous way to study that. And what's missing from the book, which isn't interesting unless you're in the nuts and bolts, is how fucking hard some of these things would be to pull off. I mean, these beautifully designed but very difficult experiments that show us these amazing things. And I think that's really cool. Uh, something else I really like, I mean, it's really obvious from reading both Sheldrake's writing and read, reading about him, he's had a very privileged upbringing, right? I mean, maybe not hyper wealthy, but he's had a really privileged upbringing. But he's used that instead of just to be a jackass, as some people with privileged upbringings will do. He's used that to take an opportunity to explore things. We're trusting here that he's a fairly reliable narrator of his own life, right? But assuming that, he's just gone out and been curious and actually explored and made contributions to science instead of just living some life of, you know, leisure or wandering around using his privilege to be horrible to people. I mean, he grew up around mushroom enthusiasts. Uh, I love that he started fermenting as like a hobby when he was introduced to it by a friend who had another friend who, who'd done jail time overseas, like learning how to make prison wine. <laughs> because I have to say, I have a lot of family who've worked in like corrections. And so I have been aware of Pruno and like how one might make that from a fairly young age, but I've never had any desire to do it. <laughs> so I love that he was just like, yeah, let's start fermenting stuff, see how it tastes and and describing sort of the different intoxications. That's kind of amazing. And, and something you, you know, not everyone would do. I love that he made cider from the trees that were a clone of Newton's apple tree. And that's something you couldn't get away with if you weren't really privileged, right? Because if it was some poor kid in the <laughs> in the inner city reappropriating apples from some very significant tree, that just it wouldn't go the same way as wandering around 
Cambridge doing that, but I love that he does that. He literally got a no answer. Like they told him, no, you can't have the. Well, I guess he. he because he, he's like, oh, I'll just take one from the ground. And then he comes back later and is like, no, ha, 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 ha. We're going to take all the apples. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, they have to see the, the apples fall. Yeah, so it sounds like the windfall was fair game, but that he didn't just stick to the windfall. And if they got six liters, uh, so we actually, because um, we have apple trees, not like a, a production orchard, but we have a cider press. And to get that many liters of cider, that's actually a lot of apples. <laughs> like, it's, it's you know, it, it it's not a pocket full or even a backpack full so that's kind of funny to me uh, but it's pervasive through the book he very much embodies ted's philosophy of being curious and not judgmental uh he's curious about everything he's chill about everything and i absolutely love that about him because he reads like someone who's just wants to tell you this cool story about this cool thing he found and i and i think that's great and I think that's what made it so like, that's for me, what made it so readable was it had that like right? Like it wasn't like, I'm, I'm the scientist and I'm going to speak science at you. He's just like, look how cool this is. Right. And we're all yeah. like, oh yeah, that's so cool. I absolutely love that. And I, I think it's funny too, because if you look at the way Ted is curious and not judgmental, Ted definitely has his biases, right? Against certain things, but they come out in a way that's very different than you would expect from a a white man in his 40s who grew up in middle America, right? Like when Beard confesses before the Man City match to have like accidentally helped coach a match while he was on mushrooms, right? You know, Ted doesn't react to the the hallucinogen use, right? He's like, oh, you all fancy now drinking tea, right? It's the, it comes back to the tea thing. Like, and that's so funny. So true. Having grown up at the same time period, how much the just say no drug war was hammered into us that a lot of people just haven't gotten past thinking that all drugs are evil and they're all equally evil and equally bad. So the fact that they have that little twist in there, I, I thought was was cool. And so I, I think y'all are going to drill down in a little bit, but I just sort of had thoughts from all over the book. So I'm going to I'm going to cast a wide mycelial net and just pick on a few things throughout the book. Ooh, I love it. Ooh. And I do love that idea of networks of mycelium, like out sampling the environment, right? So when the mycelia sense something that the organism needs, what the book describes is it directs more resource, resources, more fibers, more everything in that way, and then withdraws mycelia away from other directions. And I've been about to torture a metaphor, but the book loves its metaphors anyway. But you can see that when you see shifting paradigms in sport with regards to coaching, with regards to how we treat mental health of athletes and stuff, right? A lot of energy has been put into building certain types of people up. And we have this tradition of coaches that are building manly men and you have to tough things out and you have to work through injuries and stuff. But as we're seeing other examples of what can work and, you know, what could be a better way Ideally, what we'll see is resources moving away from that toxic bullshit, right? And more resources being put into more opportunities being given to the people who can sort of present this better way of seeing athletes as people, seeing teams as groups of people who all have needs that need to be met. Like I said, it's a very tortured metaphor, <laughs> um, but I sort of saw that in, in the way the mycelium sort of look around and sample everything uh, and gradually we'll find better and better things. Um, there was a line that was very nearly near the end of the book um, discussing how approaches when people are looking at the relationships between fungi and other organisms really need to address that biology likes to put things in a strict binary. You know, that's why we're so hung up on people 
just insisting there are two genders. You know, they've had for a long time this strict binary of it's either parasitism or symbiosis, and then they've sort of introduced things in between instead of like this continuum, right? Kind of this idea that things can be cooperative, but they can also be competitive. You can have one network that carries nutrients, but it can also end up carrying poison. It's this non-black and white, very nuanced gray version of the world that I really like. And the line that he puts in the book that I'm quoting is narrative possibilities are richer. We have to shift perspectives and find comfort in or endure uncertainty. And I really, really like that because I do think seeing the nuance in the gray areas and things makes narrative possibilities richer. Uh, and I think the show does that in a lot of different ways that we don't always see in shows. And I'm sure y'all will feel free to chime in with examples, but for one, look at how focused the show is on the female gaze. That's not something we always see, right? It's a, it's a different thing. It probably makes some people uncomfortable. How non-attached it is to that toxic style of, you know, there is one way to be a man, right? We, we have this continuum of masculinity that I think just works so much better and it makes the show more interesting. Early in the book, Sheldrake discusses finding a, uh, kind of a better understanding of what's going on in these systems, these cooperative systems between fungi and other organisms. When you stop, you know, we have a real tendency as humans, and he points this out, everything's focused around humans and then kind of how other organisms interact with it. And he's found that you can get a better understanding when you shift to a perspective that considers how and what fungi want instead of just sticking to, for example, a tree-centered version of things, right? And it's a great approach to life anyway when we kind of decenter ourselves. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> I know, right? Um, but, you know, sort of taking this shift in perspective is a, a common and, and good narrative sort of technique anyway, right? So if we look at the reveal that we have in Ted with the Man City after the match when he tells Dr. Sharon that his father committed suicide, right? That shift in perspective given all the things they've already built into the show gives us so much more information about Ted and what, what he's going on. Like you look back at the darts scene in season one, which stands alone as a very poignant and just emotional and wonderful scene. But when you go back and look at that through the, the shifted perspective of knowing what happened to Ted with his dad, how much pain he had to tap into to do this thing for his friend is amazing. If you look back at the end of season one, where he's telling Rebecca, it's okay to fire him. If the team gets relegated, He's using all this death imagery. You know, he, he does the, the the fingers across his throat. He pantomimes being hung. And then what, what is really striking is he does a gun to his head and, and pulls the trigger, uh, which is just when you recontextualize it with what happened to his dad, right? Gives us so much more information about Ted. I also think another really great example of perspective switch giving us better narrative possibilities. If you think about Ted and Beard, Right. Beard is a really major character who we don't get to know a whole lot about. And they communicate really well. Communication is a big theme in this book. They know each other so well that Beard can just anticipate what Ted needs. Right. At the start, he knows what Ted needs for his office. He knows when Ted's going to need a beer, when he's going to need moral support. 
He knows when he's going to turn into Led Tasso. <laughs> That's right. He does. And he even knows when Ted needs like reining in, right? When he needs to pull him back and, and you know, these are professionals, you need to bench Roy. But from the start, we see things from a completely Ted-centric point of view, right? Much like people looking from the point of view of humans or people looking from the perspective of trees instead of the other partners involved. And so Beard is this major character we don't get to see too much about. But when we do have that perspective shift, we get this absolutely glorious bottle episode of Beard After Hours. It's so infinitely interesting. It's such a wonderful narrative that they were able to throw in there. And I so I think... Being able to shift and look at perspectives from other directions is really great. And again, I mentioned a little bit, but letting go of absolute binaries of this thing is one thing or another. And in fact, we can have continuums of behavior, continuums of identity, or people or organisms can be multiple things at once, right? There's a lot of that reflected in Ted Lasso, how it, how it approaches the many different ways to be masculine. Uh, we get so much more depth from the characters because they're not firmly rooted in one or the other. You know, we, I think, only have one character who I think is canonically bisexual um, because Keeley has basically directly addressed that. Yeah. But you can see that in how the fans read so many of the characters as either bi or potentially bi. I mean, the, the ships that they've set up that way. Um, because they've made these characters so much more in-depth and not forced them into, like, rigid roles. So that's kind of my tour through some different themes of the book. It just reminds me of Keely and Roy because you know like Keely's now like going into the sort of business world and Roy's going to Spain for six weeks to chill out and it's like they've totally swapped roles you know because that sounds right. like something Keely would do and something Roy should be doing in this sort of world and that's how they've undermined it a little but bit. Even just with the small things that that sort of allow these characters to step outside of the culturally gendered expectations like it never occurs to Rebecca that Ted is making the biscuits from scratch himself until he reveals it right That's a great like, where point. did you get it where did you get is it didn't even it, and had it been a woman would she have asked like oh did you make these or did you mm -hmm. buy them right like those kind of things those little pieces that we can all observe and go like oh yeah you know what that is breaking through that traditional binary and 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 disturbing that um yeah historical socially constructed binary and as the literature person here i'm just like oh let me make parallels with everything <laughs> i think that's great i think sheldrake did that that's part of what i liked about the book is a, mm -hmm. but he didn't do ones that were shitty and wrong time for some comments from you greyhounds Rachel F has sent in some excellent comments and firstly she's listed all the times fungus, yeast or mould were mentioned in the show including season 1 episode 10 when Beard mentions having difficulty finding the correct powder for jock itch season 2 episode 4 Carol of the Bells where Kaylee tells Phoebe that problems are like mushrooms the longer you leave them in the dark the bigger they get and season 2 episode 8 Man City where Beard confesses to having been high on mushrooms at the Port Vale match and now back to the podcast Marita, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. Andrea, you're going to go next for us. I'm excited. Yes. Um, so I have titled my section, Andrea's Emotional Journey Through Our Entangled Lives. Oh, <laughs> I love it. I love that. <laughs> um, I always have to be the feeler of the group. 
So uh, I really loved the book first off. Um, you know, I loved how we all referred. I love how we were all referring to it as the mushroom book. And then two pages in, we're all like, no, it's the fungus book. Like, <laughs> we learned our lessons. Yeah, there's so much more. There's so yeah. much more to it than than. Yeah. I mean, he addresses that pretty quickly oh, right, on, right, right? I do believe that there was a lot that went over my head. Plenty of it went over my head. Um, but I was also able to be thrilled um, to be thrilled by and completely enraptured by the books. Like science is so sexy, right, Marita? <laughs> well, I agree. I also I'm I'm going to pop in here. Um, and say there is a danger because I think the term sexy gets overused in science in a way where people use it and then it turns life into a nightmare for young scientists going to conferences and not being. Mm. Science is sexy. Scientists deserve to be respected. Hey, there you go. Um, but but I I don't read Sheldrake as crossing the line in his description of things is like i love how he talks about things being so intimate and intertangled and he talks about it in a way that sounds sexy without coming across as a creeper so i appreciate that yeah yeah i agree with that um i even like i love the drawings and i love the fact that he was using mushroom mushroom juice (laughs) to um to make the drawings i thought that was just a really cool touch I don't know if you've seen his Twitter account. He's also, when he talks at the end of the book about how he's going to seed the book with uh, oyster mushroom spores, he has a picture of a copy of his book that is actually growing mushrooms out of it, which is brilliantly amazing. Wow. Uh, worth looking at. So I'm going to digress for a moment and go up into space because you guys know I love space. But I think space is, space is fascinating and it tells us so much about where all of this I'm gesturing all over has come from, right? And I I love the great unknown of it and the, you know, what is out there, the vastness of it, like we don't know. And I've always been just very fascinated about space and how this all, the whole universe works together. Um, What is it telling us about us as a planet and humans? And, you know, even the idea that like all of us have a little space dust and big bang stuff, you know, big bang dust in all each of us. Like, that's just really freaking cool. And so, but I love, like, I love books like this that just, like, just bring me back down or just like, bitch, please. Like, we don't even understand half of what's going on here. Not even bringing you back down to Earth, but bringing you back below Earth, <laughs> like, at least the Indeed. surface. Right? And, like, even, like, the ocean is, like, I love, like, you know, every time I get immersed in some kind of ocean documentary and they're, like, we don't know what's going on on there. Like we have no freaking idea what's going on down there. Right. And all of us are like, Oh, what's going, you know, like what's happening out there, you know, like, like it's just that it always tickles me. Yeah. So like, like you were saying, like, I love how this just like solidly brings me back to earth. Like it just, you know, immediately brings me all the way back here. And um, I kind of love it. Like, you know, I, I love that it does all that. And I love all of this that, Yes, you know, yes, space, right? Space, space and the dust and all that has made this planet. But then there's things that are happening here that are very unique, right? Like I think we all know, like our water, the the sun, like everything about the way Earth formed is what makes us all here and what made life grow here. And that's equally interesting and important to know. So I love that, like just putting those two things together, honestly, they do go together. Although I was terribly intrigued and enthralled by this book, I did not actually immediately see like a literal connection to Ted Lasso as I read this. And I know that Bex and Mikhailo, when we get to your sections, you did have a little bit more potential like 
Oh, I struggled at first, though, as well. I was, you know, until yeah. I got to the, the psychedelic section, I, I was like, oh, this book is fantastic, but how how do I do this? But then, yeah, something just clicks, right? Yeah. It, and it, like, yeah, I was just, I kind of got to the end and I was just like, I was the shruggy emoji. I was like, okay, like, what do I do with this? You know? And then I, I kind of started thinking about it. And like, I started thinking about, again, this idea, I was just like, again, like this amazement I always have when I'm brought back to earth, you know, after like, you know, I'm like pouring over James Webb, you know, pictures from space. I'm like, oh my God, look at that. Like, you know, and then it's like a book like this, like I said, just brings me right back to reality. But because I tend to be led by my emotions, what did stand out to me was that I see this overarching narrative Ted Lasso is trying to portray, in my opinion, that we all need each other in life for success to win. Um, Most important, we are all vital to this ecosystem and deserve care, you know, deserve care, consideration, and respect, no matter where we are in that system, at the top, at the bottom, and everywhere in between, right? Space is just as important as the microorganisms on our planet. They all do their part. We should care about the planet, our neighbors, the animals, the microorganisms, and everything that makes up this system. Like, we should care about them, right? We should have some kind of understanding how they all go together. You know, that was that was also the take that impressed me most from the book, how this all functions together. Every piece of it is vital, People, you know, like people shrug off the destruction of our coral reef or, um, you know, that there's less bees out in the world, right? Um, That they are these insignificant details that don't matter, but it does matter. And it does say something about our existence and how we're going to continue to live with these huge, you know, these huge systems, but some people see them as small and significant systems are actually being destroyed. And uh, it kind of reminds me of when I first read Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles. He has a story, which is, a, a, you know, not unique to him, but that's, you know, the thing about the uniqueness, the, the um, importance of a butterfly, right? And, and um, he had this story about um, people going, being able to travel in the past and see things in the past. And everyone that went on this trip, they had to stay on a, they had to stay on a certain path because if they tread off of it, they could kill something that ultimately would, right? And basically one of the guys kills a butterfly and then he comes back into the present. And Is that like the prime directive in Star Trek? Kind of like yeah, that. Kind of, right, exactly. So this idea that like everything matters. And so um, enough about space talk. <laughs> um, I've been saying a lot about space, but I love space. Um, how does this all relate to Ted Lasso? So, so as I hope I've illustrated above, I love how I loved how everything works together and all these systems work towards a larger picture of life and how we all need each other. I think Merlin covered all the science of that expertly. Um, when I think about Ted Lasso, I think of it more from the emotional need and, and all we have for each other, which is just as important as the science and nature of it. So I'm not going to attempt to do the sciencey part of it. I'm going to stick in my <laughs> stick in my wheelhouse, which is the emotions. So just kind of starting first from a soccer football um, as a sport is such a beautiful example of teamwork. Um, if you'll indulge me again, I'm going to talk a little bit about Messi. And right, like, right, Messi scores. He's awesome. Everyone loves him. But it's actually his assists that are so stunning, right? Like, yeah, he makes these points, but his assists are just astounding. Like, just watching him dance around the field and the way he sees all of his teammates and, like, you know, like, that's where his magic is, right? But everyone's like, oh, he scored six, you know, like, whatever, right? Right? Obviously, the the points matter, but, like, he's helping other people score. He's helping turn other people into messies, you know, like, giving them that that chance right like I think we have this kind of obsession with like who's the goat you know 
um, who, you know, um, I'm from Chicago. So like the way people talk about Michael Jordan, it was like, he was one player against, you know, like he was the only one on the field. I grew up in Foxborough, Massachusetts, Andrea. Mm. I knew exactly like that's the first time I heard the term goat was referring to he who has now gone to another team. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, they are great. But again, it's like, you know, even if you asked Messi, you know, he would say it's his team. The team is what makes him great. And the fact that they they listen to him, they listen to his clue, their the clues of each other and they they work together to be successful. You might say that he's just one of 11 out there on the field. Yes, Ooh. I might. Smooth, smooth fix. Well, well done. So along these lines, um, so along these lines, um, something that really struck me in the book was the discussion of lichens, which for a long time, people had a hard time coping with the idea that it was, you know, two organisms from different kingdoms working together. But finally, that became mainstream and and everyone accepted that. And then the research that introduces that it's not just two organisms necessarily in a given lichen, right? There can be multiple organisms in there and everyone's contributing something. Made me think of two aces, right? Because there was such a big deal there of having Jamie and Danny on the same team. And it is the forwards that get so much attention in soccer because they score. But if you look at even how they've constructed the the seasons of Ted Lasso, right? In season two, the team's flailing until they have leadership from Isaac. Isaac's not a scorer, right? They have to develop that other character. It's this. It's not just one or two people who are really important. It is bringing everyone in. I mean, we've had Sam's development arc to the point where he's scoring hat tricks. Um, everything like that. We need the whole team. And it's so much in line with how Ted treats the team too, right? Starting all the way back with Biscuits at the boss, he knows and understands that he has to value everyone and, and understand everyone in the organization to make everything work. It's like why he knows everyone's name. It's why he can ride on the back of the um, riding lawnmower <laughs> to, to sort of celebrate time out on the field. Woohoo! So um, good for your sciatica. Yes. That's, uh, that's actually a great segue. Um, because you're, we're coming to my Ted section. So, right. Like I, I completely agree with everything you said. And just to elaborate a little bit more, I can relate to Ted a lot in his journey. You know, he moved halfway across the world to give his love space and realizing that she needed space in every aspect of her life, right. The physical distance and the emotional bonds that held them together, right. Them eventually getting divorced. I can relate to his panic attack and feeling suddenly disconnected from everything he thought made him Ted, his family, Right. And like at the time, not necessarily understanding the complexity of, you know, his father and that, but like, right. Family is something for Tad big. Right. And it, it it's something that anchors him and drives him. So that disconnection from it, him losing, you know, him getting the divorce, being physically disconnected from his child and all that, like, you know, that's when the panic attacks kind of started and all that. And family is a complex rung in this giant ecosystem of our lives, and we need family. And, you know, I'm going to preface this or saying when I'm talking about family, I don't mean people genetically related to you, but, you know, having family ecosystem within your life in some way. And it can come from many places. So I believe Ted's journey in season two is finding that anchor for himself outside of his family, right? Like he's he's struggling because he's lost this part of him and he's, you know, never dealt with his father and it's starting to kind of unravel 
everything of his life. And what, and, you know, while he's struggling with this and his personal life journey, he understands it vitally in his external family. You know, it's, he's teaching his coworkers in season one, that they are an ecosystem that succeeds in its balance, that everyone is needed for, you know, from Rebecca and Higgins all the way to Nate and, you know, the guy that's mowing the lawn, right? Like they are all part of the, you know, success of Richmond. And so it's, it's all these people and everyone in between the whole team and everyone, it's all vital, you know, Ted feels off because of his family situation and it starts to crumble around him in season two. But I also think he highlights well the other side of the balance in life, which is his overly positive attitude while also being realistic and tending to his emotions. You could only smile over, you know, kind of smile over bad times and push bad feelings down for so long. Eventually you have to deal with it. Right. And Ted has a very strong aversion to therapy but he needs it, you know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, eventually you have to deal with it. Eventually you have to, you know, think about these things and talk through them and deal with them. And uh, this is another example of this ecosystem and how it's all working together. You need this, you need talking to someone about the things that have happened to you and dealing with it and working it out helps you function better. Um, and I hope we can all agree that ignoring your problem has never, ever successfully made them go away in any example ever. <laughs> And you can, people can at me about that. <laughs> Come at me, bro. <laughs> I can confirm. Um, Keely, which we talked about a little bit earlier, but her journey of, re, you know, realizing kind of what you guys were saying, her journey of realizing that she needed this kind of life purpose outside of having a mate and having a partner, but just her own, you know, what she was doing. Um, a mate that, you know, and even a mate that gives her more than just social credibility, credibility. Uh, social credibility. But then again, later in season two, her realizing her space, her life needed equal time in her life, right? Like, I think she's like slowly like growing and, and in season two, she's starting to have this like, wait, like, you know, this, the, that those scenes of her um, struggling because Roy was always there, right? Like it wasn't something indicating that there's a problem in their relationship. It was indicating that she's realizing like, okay, wait, like I've always given my all into a relationship. I've always been completely focused on my man and I've started to build this. I've started to build this career for myself and I really like it and I need more of it. And I need me time. Like sometimes you do need to come home and not speak to anyone and take a two hour bath, you know, <laughs> and that isn't saying anything bad about your relationship or anything like that. Yeah, every single day I need, every I need day. a good couple of hours where nobody speaks to me, and I'm I've always felt weird for it. And now I'm like, no, if that's what you need, you need that. Sometimes, yeah, right. It's that whole difference between an introvert and an extrovert. Introverts get their strength from their alone time. It doesn't mean they don't like people. It just means they need to recharge alone. It's draining. It, like a certain amount of time, it's it's kind of draining, and you need to kind of recharge, right? Yeah. And so I feel like the poet Khalil Gibran said it best when he said um, he wrote a poem. He wrote a series of poems about different parts of life. And one of his is about marriage. And it was um, stand together yet not too near together for the pillars of the temple stand apart and the oak tree and the cypress grow not in each other's shadow. Which, I, you know, I thought was a nice kind of also segue for write this book and the kind of the trees. And I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah. Like that. And uh, I read that. We read that in our, when I got married, my husband and I, we read that poem in our, for our vows. I like that. That's yeah. really sweet. So Rebecca, also very focused on relationships in the wrong way. You know, I love seeing her relying on her friends more. 
Um, you know, she seems to start, you know, kind of welcoming these people into her life again after, you know, whatever, what's his face, dumb, dumb head did to her, uh, Rupert, you know, starting to let, like, trust people, let people in her life again and these friendships, her realizing she doesn't need to be a boss ass bitch 24 hours a day. She can, you know, she can let her guard down and, and let these friendships in. She can be vulnerable. As she accepts that, it will only open her up more to be able to start a healthy relationship when that happens. Both Colin and Nate are still learning this as well. Like, I think they're like way early in the journey as well about like what balance and all this means in their lives, where it fits, you know, where they fit into all of this. Like, I think Nate on what is the dividing line between his family and friends and work and coming to terms with his parents and like the expectations he's put on Nate, I'm sorry, the expectations he's put on Ted that are pretty unreasonable and just kind of not, you know, like basically, basically putting issues he has with his father on Ted instead of talking to his father. Um, you know, and Colin, I think is, uh, hasn't under, doesn't understand himself yet. Um, or maybe is just starting to a big, a big difference with Colin is that he is taking advantage of the tools and resources that are there like Dr. Sharon and, and, having that therapy and learning and growing with with support and not relying on that support fully but using it as like a I don't like to refer to Dr. Sharon as a tool but like using yeah. the therapy the yeah. therapy as a yeah, tool yeah. to make those changes in his life and grow yeah well I I thought it was interesting in the book looking at the relationship between Ted and Nate when it talks about Instead of thinking about what the trees use the the fungi for, what the fungi use the trees for, right? And how the fungi can be farming trees, essentially. And so if there's a tree that's not doing very well, they can redirect resources to that tree until it's doing okay. And that's kind of what Ted did with Nate, right? He gave Nate a lot of support until Nate was kind of on his way (laughs) and doing fine. And then he sort of started redistributing his resources, and that's when Nate completely flipped out. Right, because unlike the plants and the fungi, Nate didn't have the (laughs) innate understanding of how to do it on his own, right? He had only ever had that reliance. I mean, that's how I see it anyway. Yeah. Um, Well, so I definitely hope season three brings us a lot of resolution in both of those storylines. I think those are probably... At better. Yeah. At bloody better. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i feel so bad for them <laughs> the expectation no, no, the pressure right <laughs> no, I, if, I am joking i'm not but i no, i'm not yeah. but did you all see there is a post uh that jason sudeikis liked within the past couple days i mean it's a quote let me go read the quote <laughs> um it's a rick rubin quote where is it the best way to serve the audience is to ignore them <laughs> <laughs> love it love it it's his it's his story well not just his i agree story, with but it. it's his story I agree um i just thought that was yeah i can't imagine what kind of pressure that man is under right now i feel bad for him yeah, yeah. listen the only thing i need is gay call <laughs> anything <laughs> else can happen and i'll be like yeah i'm with you jason you you tell that story yeah, yeah. best of all it's been on, yeah we're the same i'm like whatever else yeah that's fine but if you fuck up the call and story like yeah. oh <laughs> We're going to have words. Yeah. The Colin storyline and you can't fuck with Isaac. Don't, don't hurt my eye. If Isaac gets hurt in any way. Oh yeah. No, no heart in Isaac. Isaac's just, uh, yeah. Let's all give him a cuddle. 
(laughs) So I think this is part of why I really don't want everyone to just end up together in the end. You know, do Ted and Rebecca work? Of course they do. So much chemistry between them. Um, But to have both the female characters kind of end up in relationships in relationships at the end would really be disappointing and just kind of um it too just typical of sitcom unless it was with each other i'm just unless it was with each other (laughs) i mean like i wouldn't hate it but if but um the opportunity here to show so much more i hope it isn't squandered you know our debilitating focus on people having to be paired up is just like nails on a chalkboard to me you know, everyone's freaking obsession with like, well, are you going to date again? Is someone going to date again? Are you, oh, you know, it's just like, oh my God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, Leave it alone. Leave yeah. it alone. And like, it doesn't matter. Like you can have fulfilling relationships without romance. Yes. It's a personal, personal uh, beef I have, but um, so in tell, conclusion, us, tell us, tell us how you really feel, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make a whole podcast episode about it. Can I contribute with the number of people who think as a single mom, I need to, I don't know, find it. Same. Mm. Yeah. So, um, you know, it just struck me how eloquently Ted Lasso rides that line of this overarching thing and tangled life spoke to me about in our universe, how we need each other, how everything works together from, you know, again, from space all the way down. Um, and how we need all of it. And some of it is right. And and it doesn't mean that everything's working together constantly, right? Like we have forces of things that, you know, are adversarial. And sometimes that helps us grow. And like, sometimes something needs to push against another thing so that it can go its own way. You know what I mean? Like, like, it's this beautiful synergy that isn't always necessarily like, oh, everything's working together and positive. And, you know, like, it's just this ecosystem of the way everything works and how it contributes to each other or not, or in different areas, or even help something not grow one way and grow another way. Like just all of that just fascinates me. And I feel like Ted Lasso is kind of telling that same story, um, how we need each other, how everything works together and how we need all of it, the fungus, the mushrooms, the trees, the creatures. And we also need the sun and space dust and each other. And I need my Coach Beard Book Club crew. Oh, I need you so much. Yeah, I need you guys. Yeah, (laughs) We're not going anywhere. Good, good, good. I liked it when they said that. Um, I, I felt really big about myself when it was like, you know, to like the mites and fungus on your body, you're a planet. Mm. And I was like, I'm a planet. <laughs> and and then that that tweet, I think I retweeted it the other day, where they commented on like the pronouns they them aren't about like <laughs> not being oh, right. like not being binary out of the binary. But instead, because they're like, they contain a multitude of. I am respecting the microflora on my body. Yeah. (laughs) There is that book called I Contain Multitudes. I don't know if you've seen that or read that, but there's a book called I Contain Multitudes. And is it about fungus and bacteria in your body or? Yeah, basically how we contain so much in us. Nice. Yeah. Time for some more comments from Rachel. Rachel has a great analogy, including truffles. Rachel says the club owners are the truffle hunters. They don't have the skills themselves to hunt truffles and might know the general area, but still require the assistance of a truffle hound. Also, just as Rupert poisoned Nate's heart against Ted and poached him for West Ham, rival truffle hunters have been known to poison other hunter dogs or even outright steal them. Coaches are their skilled truffle hounds. They are trained to spot potential and to essentially sniff out the talent and potential in the players. 
And of course, the players are the truffles. Smells like potential. Truffles take time and certain conditions to develop just as a player does. And a truffle hound could spend a whole day sniffing about in the woods only to find one truffle. Just as a coach might spend a whole pre-season scouting and only find one or two potential players for the team. Also, money. Truffles are rare and expensive, just as a decent player is going to require a hefty contract. I absolutely love that analogy, Rachel. Thank you so much. And now, back to the podcast. Andrea, I loved it. I love the theme of everyone working together and, you know, teamwork. I think you're going to do something about teamwork, aren't you, Bex? <laughs> That's one word for it. <laughs> um, actually, you know, I, I, you were talking about the the zombie ants and I'm definitely going to be pulling uh, pulling from that example. That that was one of those moments. I'm laying there reading the book. I, I'm in bed. My husband's in bed reading his own thing. And I just stopped and I was like, you have to hear this. And I just read him these paragraphs and he was like, what? What? Wait, 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 what? <laughs> and so I, I knew at that moment, like I wanted to do something with that and I wasn't sure what. So I kept reading and kept, you know, I I managed to come up with a parallel and you know, Andrea was talking about fungi linking the world together in all these amazing ways and how everything from space to, you know, the tiniest organisms in and under the earth are connected. And yeah, they are. But not all of those ties are positive for all parties involved, right? <laughs> That's my diplomatic way of putting it. That was when you hear about it, when you hear what's coming, that was very diplomatic. <laughs> I love it. That's the parallel I want to look at. So this is the zombie fungus, and this is me and my scientific speak. Here we go. Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. Good, because that's not how I, w- I... See, I need to learn because I did not know how to pronounce that word. I'd probably go uh, Ophiocordyceps. I'd probably soft. So here's something about science is there are some really commonly wor- used words that have disagreements about how to use them, especially when they have sort of fragments of them that aren't normal in English, um, to the extent that I think a linguist, if they haven't already, could probably go through and map who had worked with who based on how they say certain words. So there's this word that means program cell death. And there's a split between people who say apoptosis and apoptosis because that pt should be silent to to the extent that people will like ridicule each other not like in major presentations but on smaller levels like oh my god it's apoptosis just say it like that some people some people might pronounce it gif and some might pronounce it gif oh that's the one there you go i'm all about the connections today so, so i would be tempted to say ophiocordyceps um but uh, there's probably more than one pronunciation floating out in the world. All right. Well, I'll try and remember that. If I say it the other way, just forgive me. I I won't be using it too many times. I know what you mean. I'll call it the zombie fungus. I want to talk about this zombie fungus and its relationship with carpenter ants. And I want to parallel that with Rupert's relationship with primarily with Nate, but also with others. <clears throat> So I've kind of broken this parallel down into five steps and taking it primarily from these paragraphs on the zombie ants, which I don't have the print copy anymore, so don't remember what pages they were from. 
So the first step is the infection. When carpenter ants are infected by the spores of this specific zombie fungus, they, as Sheldrake states, quote, are stripped of their instinctive fear of heights, leave the relative safety of their nests, and climb up the nearest plant. This is known as summit disease and is something the carpenter ant would otherwise never do. Right? So this is sort of the setup. This is this is the beginning of the journey for this pairing between animal and fungus. Rupert. Now, Rupert gives Nate a false confidence to do things he otherwise might never have done. There's just, we don't know what he said, but there's just something so disgusting and creepy about the way he leans over and whispers into Nate's ear at uh, Rebecca's father's funeral. Like, he seems like he's sort of planting the seeds. He's dusting the spores. Infecting. Nice. Infecting. You're on fire. You're on fire. I got something today. (laughs) This is what happens when I'm on school vacation. <laughs> there's, there's brain left over now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the next step after the infection is the puppeteering. And with the orphiocordyceps or orphiocordyceps or whatever you say, unilateralis, once it has infected the ant and climbed up the plant, the fungus, and this is again, I'm going to quote here, forces the ant to clamp its jaws around the plant. Mycelium grows from the ant's feet and stitches them to the plant's surface. So basically, the the ant has become a puppet for the fungus um, and is being stitched to this leaf. What? (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. It's still like... It's fucking insane. Yeah. I've read the paragraph like four times, five times. Like, it still blows my mind every time. So... I see Rupert as very much behaving like this sort of puppet master in his relationship with Nate. He can no longer control Rebecca. He has zero influence over someone like Ted. Ted's just like, whatever. I, I, you know, he's Ted. He realizes that he has to utilize some other tactic to get what he wants. And this tactic involves manipulating Nate. Nate has had a tough upbringing. We've, we've discussed this many times before. And his relationship with his father in particular is very, it's just awful. (laughs) Um, And so looking at Nate's behaviors in the first season and a half, it's not difficult to see like how he would make an easy target for Rupert, right? People like Rupert target those who have a weakness they think they can uh, take advantage of. And, And that's one thing that Rupert is very good at. The next bit I want to sort of take a, a semi-detour from Nate and talk about some of the others. And in relationship to the fungus, I think what's fascinating about it is that it compels the ant to perform like this death grip, but it's under very specific circumstances, right? The temperature has to be just right. The humidity, the, the elevation from the ground, the orientation towards the sun, all of these. And the freakiest of all, these ants all take this death grip simultaneously like you just i can i'm just like imagine i'm shuddering like i don't know if anybody else's spine is like shorter than it usually is but mine is right now because i'm cringing so hard it's just like they all bite this major vein of the leaf simultaneously and that just blows my mind like so i was like well how can i connect this this isn't really like nate but because i don't think rupert can turn 
everyone um, like into his own personal Nate. It's not like he can he has 50 Nates around him, but he can use Nate to help turn people against Ted and Rebecca and and Richmond like that or their their relationship, Ted and Rebecca's relationship with the Richmond team. I don't think he would ever convince them to not be fans, but maybe they'd call for like ownership to be changed and 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 coaching. Right. You know, his original goal is to get Richmond back, but he can't do that. The terms of the divorce prohibit him from having a certain amount of ownership over Richmond. And so this is his way of bringing down Rebecca's rule over Richmond, right? So if he can turn the fans against the leadership of the team, then he can win over Rebecca. That's fascinating because it makes me instantly think that when he's going out with Bex, um, he then gets Bex to buy the shares because he can so Bex is literally his carpenter aunt in this scenario. Ooh, I did not go there, but that's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah, just another another carpenter aunt for Rupert to manipulate. And you know what? And like, just to like, you know, you're right. Like, this is like, you know, not that you're saying anything against what I said, but like, right. Another a part of that is that there is survival of the fittest. And I think we can all agree that humans are the thing that's in this whole network. <laughs> That's fucking it up, right? <laughs> We're yeah. the reason the coral reef is dead. We're the reason the be- the bees are going away. Like, <laughs> why do you think the mushrooms want to get us all stoned and happy? <laughs> but more on that later. Yeah. All right. So after the fungus has infected the ant, we're talking now kind of the end game, and it's taking control over it. Uh, again, pulling quotes from Sheldrake, it then digests the ant's body and sprouts a stalk out of its head from which spores shower down onto ants passing below. And as Sheldrake continues, if the spores miss their targets, they produce secondary sticky spores that extend outwards on threads that act as tripwires. What? What? See, from a scientist's point of view, I'm like, this is such a brilliant series of adaptations. It is. That's capable. It it absolutely is. And right... So what is the fungus's goal? Survival, reproduction, right? It doesn't care about the ants. The ant is just a means to to an end. I'm going to get into differences later on. So Marita, hang on to that thought. So while the ant is a tool for the Orphiocordyceps unilateralis, so too is Nate a tool for Rupert. Rupert has no intention of letting Nate control anything. Nate may be the big boss in name, right? He's the head coach now. But Rupert is the bigger boss, and Rupert will use him to take down Rebecca. That's all he cares about. Nate is also a means to an end. But I have a few bonus parallels that I see. Um, there's a reference in the book to the zombie fungus being a fungus in ants' clothing, which I love. I love that. <laughs> uh, you know, Rupert is a dick, but he knows how to fool people. If you think back to um, for the children, his appearance in the white suit and his the way the way he wins everyone over, he knows what he's doing. Um, the fungus doesn't have an animal body to do what it needs for survival, so it commandeers one. Rupert doesn't have the skills to coach, so he acquires Nate. And going back to what Michaela said, like. He didn't have the ability to buy shares in the team, so he used his girlfriend to do it, right? Like, 
Oh yeah. No, he he's he's adapting to the fact that he no longer has Rebecca to manipulate. Rupert's the parasite. Mm-hmm. Um, so a few other comments, and uh, I want to focus this particular section on the major differences because I, I want to be aware or be wary of what Sheldrake says. It's like, hey, be careful not to like humanize the fungus, right? The fungus is just trying to survive. Rupert is a dick. Like, that's a big difference here, right? <laughs> it's not about survival for Rupert. And so this is very very uh, important difference. While the fungus does what it has to do, Rupert does what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is intentionally malicious. Again, the fungus is just trying to exist. It's not malicious in any way. This just works. And there are plenty of carpenter ants still around. It's not like it is out of, like, taking them all out, right? So I'm not really sure, but the spores are seemingly, like, unavoidable to the ants, or at least... <laughs> They pull out all the stops, right? The fungus pulls out all the stops to to get the ants. But Nate is a grown man. He could make different decisions. Yes. Right? He does not have to be turned into the zombie ant. But he is quite lost at the moment. And, you know, I think he could still make different decisions. And I hope anyway that, like, by the end of the third season that he can still be saved or redeemed uh, in our storyline. And of course, there is no need for redemption for the fungus. It is just freaking amazing. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's kind of a remarkable that you've kind of got to be like, yeah, respect. Like, Yeah. Who rules the world? Fungi rule the world. <laughs> With with Nate, right? And this is absolutely not where the makers of the show were headed with this. But when you have that final result of the infection where it shoots the stalk out of like the carpenter ant's head, it's this physical manifestation of infection that you haven't seen before, right? And with Nate, when he finally like goes off the deep end, right? His hair goes white. Wow. And that, that, but that's no, I mean, that's not what they were doing in the show. This isn't a zombie ant infection. Although if, if they've been playing Last of Us, at least they could... <laughs> <laughs> I just got a PlayStation 5. I've been waiting for that game forever. So I'm so excited. Because no, that, be honest, that you've a... also been waiting for the TV show to drop, haven't you? <sighs> Wonder yes. why Pedro Pascal, Pedro Pascal. Um, but yeah, so I realize that's not where the idea for the physical manifestation in Nate came from, but I do think it's an interesting add-on parallel. It's still cool. It's still cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's that's me. And, and again, I agree with Andrea that Overall, like our interconnectedness for positive or negative, it is important. It is crucial. And we see that through the team. But every once in a while, there is that situation where it's not quite so beneficial for all parties involved. There's always going to be an arsehole somewhere. And there's a, there's a lot of examples where one species of a kind, yeah, like completely takes, you know, yeah, it completely eliminates another one. Right. Well, I mean, just because it's a continuum and not a binary doesn't mean there's not things on the far ends of the continuum. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm really proud I understood that, to be honest. Like three weeks ago, I went on a fucking clue what you just said. They are brilliant. <laughs> Thanks, Merlin. <laughs> Thank you very much, Bex. Uh, as much as I oh shudder every time I think about it, I did actually really enjoy that. I'm going to try and put zombie fungus out of my head now. <laughs> <laughs> In a manner of speaking. <laughs> yeah, not literally. Fuck. <laughs> and for some more comments, 
and Rachel says, I can totally see why this is a book Beard would read. The Fungi Kingdom is so much more than just mushrooms here or fungus there. It's so intertwined. In Season 1, Episode 2, Ted says, Out there, you're just one of eleven to Jamie. This popped into my head when Dr Sheldrake was talking about the South American orchid that has evolved to no longer need to photosynthesize due to the symbiotic relationship it has with the mushroom in the same area. Humans, plants and fungi all need one another in some way and can't exist for too long if one is removed. Jamie, while one of the best athletes Ted has ever seen, would not be as great without a team behind and around him. Who is holding back the other team's offside defence? Who is manoeuvring to make the pass to Jamie so he can score? It's all connected. Rachel, thank you so much for these wonderful comments. Keep them coming. We love it. And now, back to the podcast. So we started today with the scientists and we are ending with the stoner. (laughs) I'm going to be talking about dope slapping Ted Lasso characters out of their story. What I took away from the book was the many connections that fungi provide through the wood wide web, which if I hadn't read this book, I would have thought was something you found on Pornhub, just because it sounds a bit dirty. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) But no, it's cool. It's real. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by the slime molds that managed to find their way out of Ikea because I can't do that. And I have a brain like... (laughs) What? Can I take a slime mould with me the next time I go? Because that would be helpful. (laughs) But um, Sheldrake did say, and I'm going to quote here, many types of brainless organisms, plants, fungi and slime moulds included, respond to their environments in a flexible way, solve problems and make decisions between alternative courses of actions. And it made me think, do our brains hold us back from doing a similar thing? Is it our ego that prevents us from reacting to problems as efficiently as a brainless organism? Does our story get in the way? And I thought a useful metaphor, because in in the style of Sheldrake, the trouble is if you look at parts of the lichen, you don't see the lichen itself. So, fortunately, there's a fungi that can help with this exact problem. Psilocybin, otherwise known as magic mushrooms, or flesh of the gods to indigenous Mexicans. Psychedelics have been shown in many studies to help people with a variety of mental and physical issues, such as PTSD, addiction, severe OCD, and so much more. There are even studies that suggest microdosing psilocybin can help people with chronic pain and general anxiety disorder. People like me. At the moment, I use cannabis to treat my chronic pain, but I'm going to be honest with you, I have a very open mind towards it and would use it recreationally even if I didn't have chronic pain. So, you know, let's let's just get that out there. But the effects of magic mushrooms and LSD have taken so long to be explored because of a massive moral panic and a sort of realisation that's incredibly difficult for big pharma to monetize something that people can grow in their own potting sheds. And with Maria being a scientist and me being a stoner, I want to see how our views align on the situations that arose to make psychedelics illegal. Okay. All right. Um, And I'm going to say before we start that a lot of the information that I've got here was found on the Curious Minds YouTube channel. So check them out and thank you very much to them for giving me the information. But yeah, I'm interested to see our differences in views on the the sort of uh, the schedule one-ing category of um, psychedelics. And how that occurred. Because I think we've talked about psychedelics before when it was in relation to the, the author of uh, the Cuckoo's Egg. Scott Fitzgerald? 
Oh. No, Ken Kesey. Ken Kesey. Ken Kesey was the big electric Kool Aid acid tests. Yeah, I was. I was next gonna go to um the first book that you did like way back when. Oh, Dharma. Oh, the Dharma bombs. Yeah. yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, that well. actually yeah. I think predated much of the psychedelics. Yeah, I mean they got there eventually. Well, not not the grown ones but the synthetics there's a couple things i push back on just a little bit um and, and i'm gonna preface this by saying you know i don't uh, i've i've done a lot of pharmacology and toxicology course i thought you were going to say i've done a lot of psychedelics it's going to be like yes really I've actually, I haven't actually done psychedelics and that's not a moral judgment it's just a not my thing um but so i've i've done plenty of pharmacology and toxicology, but I haven't actually worked in the field. So I'm certainly not an expert on these, but I can give you some some general ideas. One thing I would push back on, um, I am not going to cape for the pharmaceutical industry, uh, but I would argue that they can monetize anything because they can take a molecule, they can isolate from something that has an effect, they can hang a functional group on it, make it so it's patentable, still has an effect, possibly an even more effective one, and still sell it. So I it's not the pharmaceutical industry that is driving this. Interesting. Okay, that's um, that's interesting. And, and, and like I said, I am not the pharmaceutical industry as a whole is not monolith, right? There are companies mm. doing great things. There are companies doing evil things. There are companies doing both great and evil things simultaneously, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's reasonable to sort of blame them for psychedelics. So. I agree that there was, you know, around Nixon's time and the dirty hippies, a moral panic around hallucinogens. Um, I think, though, and I've read a few studies that go back and forth, and some of them are being very pedantic about the definition of moral panic in a way that's not going to be useful for this conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if you look at the dates of things, there was actually a movement to make these drugs illegal that got started before the moral panic was in full force. Ooh. And so something that's really important to look at, uh, a few things to consider. From a scientific point of view, uh, a lot of these hallucinogens, uh, in toxicology and pharmacology, there's this idea called a therapeutic index. And it's kind of a measure of drug safety because it it's a measure of the ratio between how much you need to have an effect and how much you need for it to be toxic. And the bigger that difference is, the safer a drug is, right? Because the less likely you are to overdose. I'm going to say right here, no one should take any drugs at any dose on the basis of what I am saying, because I'm not a med medical professional. <laughs> but, but if you look at the safety profiles of a lot of these, a lot of these, they're actually pretty good in terms of where you're going to have toxic effects versus yeah. versus actual just the effect you're trying to get. First of all, there's racism and a complete lack of respect for indigenous cultures that led to yes. things like peyote becoming illegal, right? Um, yes, agreed. Concerns about what's going to happen to our, you know, our delicate white women, basically, if they get involved with people using these drugs. It's the same reason that marijuana, I mean, the same sort of suite of reasons that marijuana ended up uh, made illegal and treated like a drug that was so much more dangerous than it that actually is. That's something we could that, that aligns with it. Basically, Nixon's campaign against drugs was more a manipulation to control and incarcer incarcerate the anti-war left and black communities. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Nothing to do with the drugs Probably. themselves, you know. But yeah. but beyond that, part of the reason it was able to be successful is less the pharmaceutical industry and more the psychiatric community. Because if you look at, for example, LSD. A lot of these hallucinogens, 
we're not being realistic if we say people aren't going to have bad trips, right? People are going to have bad experiences. And my understanding is a lot of what sets up those experiments or experiences is the environment someone's in, the expectations yes. they have, and what's going on in the circumstances. So the early experiments with LSD were done by the CIA, right? <laughs> they were not happy, fun times. They weren't Timothy Leary chilling out with whatever weird ideas about spirituality. Blankets and hot water bottles and stuff. There was none of that. Right. And since it's not, and since it's the CIA. I'm sure it wasn't on any Americans. <laughs> That's probably true. Unabomber. Um, sorry. So, basically, a lot of the early data they had to work with was people having terrible experiences with LSD, right? Because they were set up for bad trips. And so, if you combine that with sort of a stodgy, slow-to-move medical profession who didn't see these as an unalloyed good... Um, a lot of times when they saw like emergency admissions for LSD or something, it would be people who had other issues going on. Yes. And so a lot of their concerns, a lot of the concerns of the psychiatric community is my understanding uh, with further research would have been allayed. They wouldn't have stood up to any sort of rigorous study. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that they got this early idea that, wow, they can take people and make them psychotic, they can take people and, and do this, combined within the, the moral panic rolling in is really what led to that prohibition, because there was just this immediate assumption that these drugs weren't any good anyway, when they just weren't being used right. Um, so so that's kind of where my idea of where this prohibition came out of. And and I haven't read comprehensively through the literature. And there's people who go back and forth. But there, there definitely was a moral panic. Yeah. I never knew about that, though, about it happening before. Because I knew that some trials were sort of happening. And then it got out into the greater sort of public. And then there was a sort of hippie culture. And these hippies were a threat to the Vietnam War because they were spreading anti-war sort of um, letters. Well, and all sorts of moral standards in the U.S. Like, oh, they're having sex with each other. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they were there for the sort of sexual, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They want, you know, to liberate people from, from being sexually repressed. I was going to, you guys may or made me remember, I had to look it up because I can't remember the name of the movie, Jacob's Ladder, which was about, it was a movie that came out in the 90s and it was about the testing they did, they did on soldiers in Vietnam. It's a true story. And the whole movie, this whole thing happens. And basically it was all an illusion because they had dumped these, they had basically given all the soldiers psychotic drugs and it made like, just made them crazy. Yeah. And like it says, that would have been the surroundings. Yeah. They have this whole experience and none of it was real. They were all just freaking out. And like, they just did this testing on them because they were American soldiers and they're all, you know, they're minorities and, yeah, uh, it was a great movie though, but just blew my mind back in the day. I can like watch that. But yeah, yeah. So, so when I did my cough with with Unabomber, I mean, MK Ultra was a CIA program to do all this, and and Timothy McVeigh when he was at Harvard was a subject. I mean, you can when you put that to somebody's like when you put those drugs into somebody's system when when their mind is open, as it were, and. You know, I, the way Sheldrake writes about it, every drug that we have has a mechanism of action, right? It's just that some we don't understand the whole pathway really well. And I think that's where we're at with hallucinogens, because we don't understand how the brain works, right? I mean, we have we understand things about the brain, but we don't understand how the brain works. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, when you set people up, if you look at the sort of things that they did to Kaczynski when he was under the influence of, of these hallucinogens, yeah, you can break someone's brain. You're going to have a bad trip if that's what the people around you want you to have. That's always how it goes, you know? And I don't think that's a reason to, like, 
criminalize and certainly not incarcerate people around it, but I do think it is uh, worth having discussions about, I mean, any drug can be abused, but right, education and making sure people are, are using things like that carefully. The Schedule 1 is no accepted medical use, a high potential for abuse, and a lack of accepted safety under medical supervision. Now, that doesn't fit the psychedelics to me. No, it doesn't. It fits opioids. You know, and I'm not, don't get me wrong, I am not saying that opioids shouldn't be a thing. There are people who need them. But all of that was probably more, more applicable to opioids than it ever was to, to psychedelics. So why approve them for medical use and not psychedelics, right? It's just... Yeah, and they approved opioids, and right, and like I think opioids need to come with like some understanding of what can happen and how to right. But she's like, well, I don't hear. I'm going to keep giving. I'm going to keep mm-hmm. on your, you know, your um, prescription for them over and over. And and when you have to come off of those, I've seen firsthand the effects of someone having like withdrawals from that, it's and fucking awful. it is brutal. There's so many drugs that have been approved for FDA sort of medical use. And it just doesn't make any sense to me why under the right supervision and the right, you know, recreational um, sort of setting that that you can't have it. Because, yeah, any drug has the potential to be a problem for some people and any drug has the potential for abuse. But this one seems less likely to be in that category than than some other drugs that the sort of the FDA have approved or that are in sort of medical use just now. And I, I thank you very much for that, Marita, because I really I genuinely a lot of stuff in there that I didn't actually know. But I did pick up on the the surroundings when you're talking about the surroundings, which leads really well into the next part that I've got. The way I'm talking about how we use psilocybin medicinally is uh, in a therapy setting. Sheldrake says it is psychedelics' ability to soften the rigid habits of our mind that make these chemicals powerful medicines capable of relieving severe addictive behaviours, otherwise incurable depression and existential distress that can follow a diagnosis of terminal illness. And there are trials that have been done recently which involve the patient and usually two therapists in a room and the room's very comfortable, beds, blankets, hot water bottles, and then they're administered the drug and proceed with a therapy session. And I actually watched a documentary on Netflix and it showed you, like there was people who were willing to let the cameras in and show you the sort of process. And it was fascinating, really fascinating. Um, And I, you know, enjoyed being able to see what that process was like. But what they would do is then talk through the sort of things that they faced due to the condition that they had or what they were experiencing. And in many cases, the most severe mental illnesses were all but cured and the effects of the treatment lasted at least six months and for some people up to a year. And we're talking severe OCD, severe, I'm struggling to leave the house OCD, you know, and then the guy that I watched on on the documentary was like, he couldn't believe himself, you know, he went from being incapable of leading what he would like as a normal life to leading a normal life. And even he was utterly shocked by it from one session, which I thought was fascinating. Was it Fantastic Fungi? Was that the name of it? It was a four four part and it was a guy and it, it was basically one on LSD, MDNA, mushrooms and peyote. I'll, what I'll do is I'll look it up and I'll put a voice recording of me saying it right here. It's a four part docuseries on Netflix called How to Change Your Mind. There you go, now you know. <laughs> 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 now you know. We don't, but you do. Um, and and Sheldrake said, participants described a movement from feelings of separateness to interconnectedness. 
which is fascinating when you actually think of it in the grand scale of we're talking about the mycelium network and stuff, right? It's really cool. But I was really fascinated by the results of the brain scans, which showed that psilocybin did not increase brain activity. It actually decreased um, activity in the brain known as DMN. And I'm not, I'm saying this as if I know what I'm talking about. I'm just repeating what I read in the book because I don't. But basically this DMN is something that would be considered a school teacher in the brain and would be a, a sort of ego, if you like, you know, protecting us. Not the fun kind of school teacher. Not the fun kind of school teacher. <laughs> the strict, teacher. boring kind. You have them? I don't have them. Excuse me. <laughs> My kid has it. Yeah, I, actually, wait, I am a fun one, too. I blow stuff up. To, to qualify that, I am a chemistry professor, so it is pedagogically a appropriate for me to blow things up i do not do it indiscriminately yeah she's not like a maths teacher that's just like fuck it let's just see what happens that'd be funny though that would be actually a cool teacher as well you got that question wrong we have safety protocols (laughs) well it's not the 80s anymore so i suppose you have to um but yeah the the dmn is what would like control sort of certain aspects of our brain but it it stops us from seeing clearly and Without it, we get to see things without ego. And that study showed that the most successful patient outcomes were those who reported the strongest sense of ego dissolution. So that got me thinking, because Sheldrake describes it as the brain being let off the leash. And I especially love the phrase that psilocybin dope slapped people out of their story. And I would like to now dope slap some Ted Lasso characters out of their story. So I'll start with a couple, but I'd love your input, but... My first one is obviously going to be Ted. And Ted's story is that he suffers from anxiety and panic attacks. He suffers from anxiety and panic attacks due to a constant need to make those around him happy to his own detriment. And the ego is believing that he should be responsible for the happiness of those around him. And I think the result of a psilocybin trial with Ted would be, and this is very, you know, surface level. I'm taking it right down. I'm just using the sort of dissolution of ego. Uh, I'm not saying this is exactly the outcome somebody would get if they were in these same circumstances. But Ted knows his own heart. He knows he's kind and he always does his best. But he also knows that bad things are going to happen and he can't always be the saviour. Without ego, he can deal with the situations as they come and know that he did the best that he possibly could. Talking about people who could benefit from some LSD and psilocybin, my dog is being a little angry in the background here. So if you hear some scratching and weird snuffly noises, it's the like that. <laughs> it's the dog. <laughs> that was great. She was right on cue. You gotta hand her that. She knows her cues. Yeah, she's definitely dramatic. Um, but yeah, that's all that is. So don't worry about it. Nothing's being hurt. So yeah, I have got also next in line Rebecca, and I believe Rebecca's story is that she's scared of being alone, but yet also scared of being with someone. And I feel like it might be a little bit of an identity crisis with Rebecca in the sense that because she was with Rupert for so long, um, she doesn't really know who she is without a man, you know? And I believe that the ego is that she, believing that she's not whole if she's single and without a partner, she doesn't really know who she is. But I believe to reduce the ego, Rebecca would now see that her identity is not wrapped up in another person. She now truly knows who she is while she's single and embark on a new relationship confident of her sense of self. If we can dope slap women out of feeling like they need to be with a partner, that in itself would explain why we got such a wonderful hallucinogens. Um, 
that is definitely a threat to the social order. Yeah, that's that's true. So we could end up with another war on drugs if, if it's going to help women. They won't like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, next, I chose Roy. Um, and Roy's story is that he's fear of losing his status as a footballer and what his life would be without it. And his ego is believing that he's only important while he is at the top of his game and that he's a nobody without that. And I believe with the, the ego dissolution, Roy would now see that his identity is not solely wrapped up in football. He can see all of his abilities and he has the opportunities he can take without his ego holding him back. And I think this one I would actually really enjoy some input. And in this is neat because this is probably one of the people that could benefit the most from ego dissolution in the show. Um, and I've got Nate, and I want to see if you agree on this. His story is that he has imposter syndrome due to an emotionally unavailable father and a passive mother. Would we agree on that? Definitely. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's his only issue, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah he certainly has that. more, yeah. I think yeah, I yeah. his biggest one, because while Nate tells Ted he's earned his place at Richmond, I don't actually think Nate believes that. And deep within him, I think he believes that he doesn't deserve what he's achieved due to his dad always undermining his achievements. So he sort of believes himself to be worthless no matter what he achieves. And, you know, he's saying things that he wants to believe, but he's not actually believing it. And I think the ego dissolution with that is that he would be less likely to crave the credit that we were talking about earlier. I don't think he would crave the credit that he desires. I think he would work more as a team. Because I think he would be able to see that his father's behaviour towards them is a reflection on his father and not a reflection on himself. And then he would probably feel like he belongs a bit more. I think he'd be more inclined to listen to someone saying that, but I don't know if anyone else would address that. You know, like, I don't know if he would come to that on his own, but if someone called it out, then it would give him a chance to reflect on it. Yeah. But since no one else knows his father, except his mother, and his imaginary sister, or, or sibling, <laughs> I guess. We don't know if it's a sister. Still not convinced on the niece. The conspiracy theory rises again. <laughs> um, you know, the imaginary sibling there. Like, unless it was one of those people who knows, and, like, they could come to that conclusion together. I don't, I just, I think he's so browbeaten that it would take Maybe a lot of these much Even with like put the pulling back of his ego. Do you think right. it's his ego that holds him because he is quite arrogant in a way, right? Like he would be someone I would think that like really needs the like taking it with a doctor and a doctor helping him like right like big time. What I was thinking tying it back to Bex is, you know, imagine Rupert guiding that trip, right? He'd be just further oh. infected, right? <laughs> like he That's would what I'm open saying. That brain open to break it. I feel like he would, he's so, so beaten down that he doesn't even recognize. Like you say, yeah, he's got this ego, but you also said he has an imposter syndrome, right? And so if he's putting on this front and he really doesn't actually believe what he's saying, is that his ego or is or that- his ego protecting him? Maybe, maybe. Mm. I don't and know. I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Neither <laughs> am I. But I do see what you're saying there. Yeah, it really would have to be one of those therapy sessions and with the people knowing exactly what to talk about because it's something he wouldn't discover in his own. That's really interesting. Um, I've got a couple of people here that I haven't actually filled anything in for because I struggled 
with Beard. Mm. Because it's, Beard is so paradoxical, it's so confusing to me because yeah. I would say that in some respects he's got it all together and other respects he really hasn't. And it's like yeah. the only thing I could pull out was a failure to assert himself and a lack of self-respect in, the, in, in that relationship. He's allowing himself to be kind of treated like shit. And that's the opposite of ego, right? <laughs> like, so what would he see... You know, I, I found that one difficult. I found Beard a bit difficult. Well, I think it's pretty well established that he's, you know, not psychedelic naive. Right. So he's probably, I think, been down that road. But, you know, this might not be the thing he needs to help him because his issue seems to be largely relational, like yeah. what what he seeks out in relationships. And I'm I'm not sure that's quite the same thing. Yeah, and I think that might be why I was struggling to come up with anything for it. Is that it's not a situation it. that, that yeah, it's not a situation that needs it either. You know, well, like I was thinking, like you know, while you're adding the mushrooms, the psychedelics to the therapy that Ted is already receiving, Beard has the psychedelics. Maybe he needs the therapy component, like to put those two pieces together to complete the puzzle. Yeah, I don't think a football match is a sort of conducive area for a trap either. You know, like, that would fuck you up. <laughs> that would be too much. See, I'm my brain is just drifting to Dr. Sharon guiding Ted's hallucinogenic journey. Yeah. And shit with, like, all the voices he does. <laughs> that, oh, write it, Marita. I need you to write that. That is fascinating. I love it. Yeah, I think the only other person that I think it would work for would be Jamie. And um, I believe Jamie, like, we're talking season one Jamie here, because season Jamie over the, the two seasons has done a lot of work on himself and he's come out the other side of a lot of it. So let's just pretend that never happened and we're back to season one Jamie. And I'm, I would say he's depressed due to constantly having to please his abusive father, uh, even though no matter what he does will ever please his abusive father. So he's in this sort of, like, state of, you know, never winning. And his ego tells him that it has to be the best at what he does, no matter what, because um, if he's if he's not the best, then what's the point of doing it? You know, and like everybody's competition, n- nobody, no teamwork there whatsoever. And without the ego, again, it's, it's a case of being able to see that relationships make his life better, and he can make up for the shitty one he's got with his father with other ones, like the one he has with Ted. Mm-hmm. You know, but again, Jamie did all this without psilocybin. So go Jamie. Yeah, I just think it would help further the, um, like maybe have the effect of having him recognize his own benefit as well in a in a non-ego way, I guess. So I think he could still benefit. Mm-hmm. And also there is something weird about Jamie with no ego because there's something about you know, doesn't work. There's no Jamie if there's no ego there, right? Like it's got to be a little bit of a prick, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be a little <laughs> bit of a prick, and it's kind of sexy, you know. So, well, using my messy example, right? Like Jamie needs to realize his internal messy, where he can help, he can work with the team, right? But then when he needs to be the, he needs to be the guy, the goat. He needs to be the freaking goat. Just give him the signal, and he's yeah. off. Yeah, yeah fan- fantastic, fascinating. You know who I think you didn't, you should, it would be an interesting one to explore. And like, this would be an episode I would watch for six hours would be the pub lads taking it with May guiding them. Oh, 
Imagine, just imagine that show. Right, now you need to write that. So that's Marita and you. Anne? Anne, are you listening? I think Paul reads like someone who already has, right? It's... <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, it, I mean, Paul, Paul would just be having the time of his fucking life while they were working through all their problems, I think. He would just be, you know, up in the, the sky... A great he, he knew what question to ask Beard when he Beard was like, talk oh, yeah. about anything oh, but. He yeah, he did. That's right. Oh, that would be so good. Right. You both have writing um, projects for next time now, ladies. So well done for talking yourself into that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of next time. <laughs> Speaking of next time. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for your wonderful. Uh, uh, I just have to say that this was so far my favorite book that we've done. Um, and it's so f- weird to me that it's a science book about fungi that, you know, I would probably never have thought I would have understood it or got it. And it just was so easy. So if you've seen this book and think, oh, you know, I wish, it, wish that was for me, try it. Because like Marita says, it's written in such a way. And, and Andrea said it as well. It's written with such passion that it, it, you feel it coming off the page. So I would definitely recommend this book. And talking about books... What are we doing next, Andrea? So up next is we are probably uh, don't know exactly the order and there's probably going to be a guest involved in here. But our uh, next movie night, Michaela and I were again outvoted. Always outvoted. Always. It's freaking ridiculous. Even though, uh, even though I was considering buying us all pillowcases and pillows for Christmas. But no, since they wouldn't do it, I didn't. <laughs> you, you, every time they make Marita and I out to like... To be the bad guys like we're over here be like no no we can never <laughs> do you see this marina no pillow fights there will be no fun at the club. you're both the precious <laughs> so you're the teachers that are keeping us in line and telling us Kai and i are the kids we're just like yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. we're in the back seat of the car baby going when do we get there when do we get there Where to be? are we there yet <laughs> um, so our movie night is going to be hamilton and our next book is going to be Johnny Tremaine. Woo! Nice. Fantastic. Fantastic. It's a very revolutionary sort of setup there. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Works well together, right? Mm-hmm. Almost like we planned it. <laughs> I say we. I don't know to do with it. <laughs> Thanks again, everybody. And we hope you enjoyed this. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Bye, Bye. everyone. Bye. 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 Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send us an email at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family and leave a five-star review.